don't really know what's going to come next. Yeah, well, I think it's clear that data is, uh, is what everyone needs to look at because the Fed have said it themselves that you know um, they're going to have you know obviously going to adapt to what uh, data comes through. And the economy is going through transition, you know, from a, a one that was uh, driving hard on pent-up demand post-pandemic to one that is starting to slow up. And, of course, all the lags and all the leads that come through in any economic um, transition are hard to read. And we're right in the middle of that. So um, it's no surprise the market's uh, holding up and slowing down in terms of its enthusiasm because there are many, many risks still out there, both from uh, economic perspective and a geopolitical perspective. So... Um, hard to be totally optimistic. Um, having said that, uh, you know, the economy is still going pretty well despite the heavy inflation. Okay, Toby, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Down in Australia, the ASX 200 is off about 0.1%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is up about a third of a percent. The Cosby is moving the other direction, down about a third of a percent. Uh, futures markets predicting a 70-point gain for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. And that's it for me this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned to Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, sunny intervals and occasional showers, maximum temperature of around 30 degrees. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. Those showers are going to ease off uh, gradually later on Sunday. The temperature right now, 27 degrees, 91% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. The United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, has said the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, seized by Russia, must not be a target for military operations. Speaking after talks in Ukraine with President Zelensky, he voiced grave concern about nuclear safety. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who was also at the meeting, warned of the danger of what he called another Chernobyl. In Washington, the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, voiced similar concerns. The United States condemns, in the strongest terms, Russia's reckless disregard for nuclear safety and security. Along with our allies and partners, we call on Russia to cease all military operations at or near Ukraine's nuclear facilities and to return full control of the ZNPP to Ukraine. We continue to support the efforts of the International Atomic Energy Agency to fulfill its safeguards mandate and to assist Ukraine with nuclear safety and security measures across its nuclear facilities. A judge in the U.S. has unsealed some of the documents which were presented before FBI agents were authorized to search Donald Trump's Florida home last week. These reveal some of the specific offenses the former president is alleged to have committed. The BBC's Chichi Zundu has more details. What has been released is more information on the warrant, which gives more detail on which specific crimes the Department of Justice are investigating against Donald Trump, including willful retention of national defense information and obstruction of a federal investigation. Now, this all came about after a group of media organizations asked a court to unseal details of the affidavit, which outlines the evidence the government had in order to obtain that warrant. The Department of Justice said it didn't want that being made public, but the judge said parts of it could be. He's given officials a week to make suggestions on which elements can be released and which should stay secret. 
Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin is facing backlash from critics after a leaked video showed her partying. The footage shows the Finnish leader drinking, dancing and singing with friends, including a number of celebrities. The BBC's Electra Naismith has the story. Sanna Marin has defended the video, which features several celebrity friends and is thought to have been leaked from social media. She said yes, she had been boisterous, but that she'd done nothing illegal. But Finland's youngest ever leader has been criticised. In one clip, the group can be heard singing using swear words and making apparent references to cocaine. It's not the first time the 36-year-old has had to defend her love of partying. Last year, she had to apologise for going clubbing in Helsinki, despite having been in contact with her foreign minister, who had COVID. Beijing has warned the United States against making what it described as a wrong judgment after Washington agreed to initiate trade talks with Taiwan. At a press briefing, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin called on the U.S. to stop its engagement with the island. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Back chat with me, Andrew Work, and Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, today is August the 19th, 2022, and we're talking about job scams, kidnapping, and enslavement of Hong Kongers abroad. The government reports that eight Hong Kongers are currently being held captive in Myanmar after being lured overseas with fake job offers. But there's more. The Security Bureau said it had received 20 trafficking reports involving Hong Kong residents since the beginning of the year. 12 suspected victims are now safe. Ten have returned to the SAR, but eight are still out there. A cross-departmental task force is now set up to rescue kidnapped residents who are across Southeast Asia. Local politicians, security and anti-slavery experts will join us here on Backchat today to investigate. After 9.15, we'll look into the government's plan to upgrade and widen Lion Rock Tunnel in a bid to reduce traffic jams during peak hours. Hit us with your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page. Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us at 2338-8266. All right, and getting to those experts uh, today, we welcome first up is Eunice Young, who is a lawmaker with the New People's Party here in Hong Kong. Eunice, good morning. Hello, morning. We also welcome Steve Vickers, the CEO of Steve Vickers and Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. All right. Eunice, uh, we understand that your, your party has been helping some of the families whose uh, family members have been, have been abducted. Some of them returned. Can you give us an outline of what, what the situation is, what's happening here? Actually, we, we received one case uh, from our, our community, community office. And uh, we, we actually have limited information about that case. And, uh, and I believe that those families would not like to disclose much to the, to the public. But uh, as far as we know that, uh, the, the, the person, the young person has been abducted uh, to um, um, Myanmar. And they, they requested a, a ransom for $20,000 to, to get the captive released. So we, we, have, we have not heard the latest news about the case yet, So, but we will keep following up on this case. Okay, and this is different from the case that's been in the newspapers about somebody uh, just named, identified as Tsang. Uh, different different no, case? Uh, yeah, I, maybe it's a different case. We, we don't know that. So, Ms. Jung, how have you uh, been following up on the case? Um, we have talked to the uh, CE office, and we, we will follow up with um, the security bureau and the police. And we, we, we have requested them to, 
to um, to of course to work um, uh, in a, in a in a fast pace in in order to to let all these cases and to connect the the captives and how 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 do they being how do they arrange them to be released and uh, yes so far we have done so uh, uh, these uh, procedures and because the family has also contacted the police and the immigration department already so they have their their, their case in the in the in the file right and now the uh, government has set up a new task force to uh, coordinate the rescue of a hong kong residents held uh, captive um uh, what do you think of this uh, task force um i think it will be it will it they, of course, it um, um, definitely will help to rescue these residents being held captive in, because they they need to have uh, different authorities and different uh, to to have connection with the, the local governments and and uh, and the consulate to 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 work together. So I believe the task force can expedite um, the the the, uh, the rescue of the captives. Steve Vickers, um, I imagine you've got quite a lot of experience in this area. Kidnapping must be part of your, uh, maybe not daily in your business, but part of your, your bread and butter. Um, but I'm guessing your work is a little different, probably with more high-profile, better-heeled clients where, you know, in a corporate situation where people are willing to pay big ransoms. Uh, how is this different? Like, well, what's, what's the situation? Well, uh, uh, number one, I think we should start by, like, there's two issues. One is making sure that we don't have any more victims, and that's by, there's no free lunch. Uh, it's uh, uh, Myanmar in particular, in particular in the Myawadi area of Myanmar, uh, of Myanmar is, is heavily affected by rebels. Um, so the area is uh, essentially lawless. Um, so getting, you know, finding yourself in Thailand and then finding yourself uh, being moved across the Myanmar border uh, is very, uh, you know, it's very, very problematic. Uh, likewise, <coughs> areas of Cambodia, in particular, those areas where illegal casinos were operating. Uh, the Chinese government had taken quite a lot of action uh, against illicit gambling, raising funds uh, in Southeast Asia, or people gambling in Southeast Asia. Uh, the shutdown of, of some junket activities in the area has, has resulted in um, groups stretching for, for further resources or stretching for further activities. Um, so there have been activities involving um, crypto frauds and the rest but essentially there's no such thing as a, a as a free lunch these job offers to to young people are purely that they're, they're aimed at they're aimed at attracting victims who could be manipulated perhaps initially to participate in crypto scams so you need someone who speaks is reasonably well educated speaks chinese understands the uh, the crypto business and the rest but in the end uh, the, these issues may not all be directly connected um people do need to understand that the, 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 this kk park which is the one that's hit the media mostly that is in an area that the said that the government does not control uh and these things are have become bases for illegal activity um so uh, i do have quite a lot of experience in kidnap runs i don't want to go into all the details no my organization is not representing any individual client Right. And, uh, and uh, Mr. Vickers, like I mentioned earlier, the government has set up a task force uh, to coordinate the rescue of Hong Kong residents. And uh, yesterday, the um, Undersecretary for Security, Michael Chuk, uh, when he was asked how authorities here plan to rescue the eight Hong Kong residents uh, held against their will in Myanmar, um, he said the government would use all possible channels to try and recover them. According to your experience, uh, what would that involve? 
Well, A, you need to recognize rescue is a, is a dangerous word. Um, so uh, recovery is a better word. Um, look, this is not an easy situation. As I say, the rebel-controlled area of Mirwadi is a problem, uh, and it, it will not be easy. Uh, however, the good news is um, the central government, the, the PRC central government, has very good political relationships with both Cambodia and Myanmar. Uh, and I think once this goes to a um, sufficiently senior level, that the, the, the PRC government has very significant, um, very significant influence. So that's the positive side for those, in, certainly in Cambodia. The Myanmar side is, is a lot more difficult and dangerous in that, uh, as I say, uh, people are in, these are rebel-controlled areas to a, to a large extent. Um, the central government already arrested somebody who, who some time ago, who, who I think is associated at least loosely uh, with these syndics, a gentleman called Sher Chi Chang, who holds a Cambodian passport uh, and a connection with, again with the gaming, uh, illegal gaming industry. So the, the nexus of a lot of, of the, the bad guys' activities anyway uh, hinges around illegal gaming syndicates. Previously, um, a lot of the targets were, were, were Chinese, but because of COVID, and because of the lack of Chinese travel to, um, uh, to, 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 to Thailand, Cambodia in particular, uh, and, and Myanmar, they moved the targets to Taiwanese, Malaysian, Chinese, and latterly Hong Kong people. Mm -hmm. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's just that it's hitting our radar because they've got new targets that are hitting a little bit closer to home. Is that a fair statement? Yes, but I think I'm quite concerned about the labels that have been flying around because everybody likes to put a label on something, right? So mm -hmm. slavery is, you know, out there in inverted commas, and trafficking. To me, to my mind, trafficking is a, is a different thing. Trafficking is, is um, you know, when people are moved, container loads of people to work in, are, are moved to work in sweatshops uh, and, and, you know, what have you. To my mind, that is what organized trafficking is. What this is, is this is organized crime. This is... Um, this is deception, fraud, and 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 and, 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 and kidnapping. That, that's actually what this is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we should be careful not to, um, what, what's the word, to overuse those labels. Like I say, the good news is the, the 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 for various reasons, which some people won't like and some will, but the central government has very strong uh, uh, political and diplomatic connections with with Cambodia and Myanmar. Uh, and for that reason, I, I feel certainly confident on the Cambodian end, I'm not so confident currently on the um, uh, Burmese, on the Myanmar end. But again, it, it, they're, they're people are better placed than, than, than perhaps elsewhere in Asia. So, uh, you know, some, some, uh, some positive noises from this too. Right. I mean, Eunice Young, you're, you're speaking to government officials, and when they tell you all possible channels, uh, are there any channels? Like, are they saying, are they identifying what those channels are in a place like Myanmar? Are they saying uh, all possible channels might be no possible channels? No, they, they, they didn't disclose, but I believe that um, um, the central government is helping, uh, helping out um, together with the officials in Hong Kong. And um, I believe that they, they will have their force to, to, to locate the captives. Because I believe that now the difficulty is where to find the captives and how are we going to connect with the, with the people who are being held in, 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 in different places. So um, um, as it is a very well-organized crime, so it, is, it makes it more difficult to identify where um, the location is. But, um, but I believe that uh, ex uh, 
And besides what we are talking to the, the, the security bureau and the police, that I think the, the, um, the labor department also has to do more on promoting how to detect um, uh, overseas employment trap, and uh, they, should, they, should, they should promote and they should uh, give out more um, pragmatic um, um, uh, news or pragmatic um, ways to, to identify different traps for, for this kind of employment. Because um, young people in Hong Kong are having, a, uh, like, they are, they're enjoying the summertime, and, and both, many of them, they would like to earn some money from, from, from some part-time jobs and, and uh, different, like, uh, um, um, uh, temporary jobs. So, um, how are we going to tell them to um, identify different traps and uh, be sensible on finding different jobs? And, and of course, not not uh, 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 when when a job is offering a good sum of money, and it, it might be um, some kind of uh, different trap for them. So, uh, how are, how are we going to protect them in overseas? And how are we going? How do they protect protect themselves um, from from this trap? Trap is very is uh, very important for them. Yeah, I mean, people are pretty excited. I mean, this this is kind of breaking now in the English language media, which is sometimes a little bit behind and, and a little more genteel in treating the topic. I want to read a uh, comment on our Facebook page uh, from Henry that maybe captures some of the excitement that was generated in, the, in, in, in Hong Kong yesterday and why. Uh, Henry says, I've seen videos in WhatsApp that show what happened to those captive in Myanmar claimed by the video. It was horrible with use of electric baton, rape, whips, cuts, beating to death. I can't see it anymore. It was so repulsive. I think it all goes around getting money from those hooked or women forced to do prostitution work. People should be alert to, to find yeah. a job in Myanmar, Cambodia, based on some advertisements and persuasions is a scam. What makes one persuaded that the grass is greener there? This is the words of Henry. To earn money is not easy. It requires hard work and not a trip to some place you are not familiar with. And he finishes with Hong Kong is the best place in the world, in his opinion. Um, but I mean, as I said, the, I, when I was talking to people about this yesterday before it broke in the English news, like Hong Kongers were freaking out. I mean, people were talking about this, passing things around, what's up, who knows if it's verified or not. Um, you know, Eunice, maybe you can bring a little bit of that emotion that we're hearing from Hong Kong people over to the English side. Yes, we will. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, we're welcome now on the line. We have Matt Friedman, who is the chief executive officer of the Mekong Club, which is a Hong Kong-based anti-slavery uh, nonprofit organization. Uh, Matt Friedman, a deep expert in this area. I've heard him speak many times. Matt, welcome to Backchat. Happy to be here. Matt, um, I know that you've been working on this file for a long time, but it wasn't people from Hong Kong uh, and Malaysia and, and, and other, shall we say, wealthier places. Can, can you give us a bit of a, an overview of the situation in Southeast Asia and, and on into Myanmar? Well, actually, I've been working on the issue of addressing modern slavery for over 30 years, but this particular issue is quite new. We've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, I first heard about this about six months ago. Somebody approached me, asked me if I had been exposed to this. I said no. And then since then, I've had numerous uh, conversations with all types of people related to this uh, because it is a trafficking situation. A person is tricked and deceived and forced into a situation where they have to work. But the interesting aspect of this is that, you know, some of the victims that uh, we've had contact with would say, you know, I would much rather be forced to dig ditches than to be in a situation where I have to scam people from my own country or other countries. And so in addition to the kind of dignity aspect of losing your freedom, you also have to do something that you feel terrible about. And so this is, this is a, a particular issue that I think we, we are going to see more and more in the next couple of 
uh, weeks and months simply because we're talking about regular citizens, not people who are from marginalized communities, being caught in a situation where they're taken away from their world and put in these horrible conditions. I know you've worked on a lot of interception, but with something like this, is there something people can do when you when you get a phone call like this and you're kind of like, you know, most of those phone calls, you either hang up right away. I answer in French, then they hang up. But should we stop and say, are you being held captive? You know, are you are you being asked to do this against your will? Yeah, I mean, the, what, what's happening is the reason why this information is available is because they are sitting in front of computer terminals, even though. There are some safeguards to prevent them from communicating to people. You know, if you're clever enough with a computer, you can get that information out to others. And so when somebody receives an email now that says, I'm in trouble or I'm stuck or even puts it in some kind of a code, we should assume that it's this type of situation. Why? Because we're literally talking about thousands of people who are in this situation. Now, you know... Uh, the prevention statement that was made just before I got on today is exactly what's needed. Getting people to talk about this, to share this information with their network. And the basic message is, is if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and you shouldn't uh, respond to it. I, I think it's going to be very hard for um, uh, a lot of people to um, uh, be tricked, and they will come up with new systems and procedures to do this as this information gets out, because people are just so freaked out about it now. Yeah. Steve, uh, you know, with, with these types of situations, is there anything you can do to help if, if you know, somebody gets yeah, well, on the there's, phone? There's quite a lot. One thing you can do, though, I think, is we, uh, we shouldn't really be talking about emotion and hysteria and thousands of people. Every time we do that, you just raise the, the value of the, of the ransom payment. So let, let's be a bit more dispassionate about this is a very bad situation. These people are in a a very poor situation, but the, media, the, the coverage of this, whilst it, it, I think it's been effective in that, I, I believe that the central Chinese government, who do have considerable influence in Myanmar and in, in, um, in Cambodia, are moving on this now. What we don't want to do is uh, excite this situation so that the, the ransom payments become go from 20,000 to whatever the, the market rate is. Uh, and, and draw attention to this, and we end up with copycat and other issues. I'm not sure that all these issues are related to the same groups or syndicates. Um, what is evident is we can do immediately today here in Hong Kong. We can get the message out. So I agree with both the other speakers that getting this message out to people uh, online and, and every other way we can uh, as the caution is good. And then in parallel with that, we need to recover the people that we can Half of this problem also will be that people who've got themselves into trouble may have, and I'm not being unsympathetic, but may have been on the fringes of illegal gambling or crypto um, uh, or crypto issues. So it's easy to get sucked in. Again, it's critical that people understand that, that the collapse of the, the junket world, the crackdown by the mainland on the um, uh, underground gaming business across Asia, have, have impacted these people's ability to um, to generate money. Uh, so I mean, the, this is this is a this is this is a very ugly situation, and it can result in fatalities um, and very bad treatment. So I think we need to be a bit more hard nosed um, about uh, about how we how we discuss this, uh, not to add uh, panic uh, amongst the, the the local populace. But again, if I had a young family traveling in, um, in in Thailand, I mean, it's important that they know Thailand is close proximity 
you can be in Cambodia or, or Myanmar quite quickly. But it's important that people do understand, you know, stay put, do not do that. So I think the education thing is what will prevent it. But I do think we need to watch the... Um, I mean, I, I read the, the Chinese media was unbelievable the last couple of days. Yeah, um, yeah, people are. Uh, yeah, like I said, people people are freaking out. You know, as they uh, do. Absolutely. Yeah, we we have a caller on the line, Anthony. Uh, welcome to Back Chat. Uh, what have you got for us? Okay, uh, good. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my question is actually this kind of uh, deception has been um, has been talked about over the past one or two years by the mainstream media and also by the, uh, like a lot of uh, social media. I'm just wondering why people are so gullible and still get tricked into uh, those, uh, uh, those places. Is that something wrong with our education or, 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 or the mindset? Okay. Do you have a comment on it? Okay, thank you very much, Anthony. We'll, we'll put that to our guest, Matt Friedman. Do you want to kick off? Well, I mean, 25,200 people a day are uh, kind of sucked into trafficking situations around the world. Uh, hope springs eternal. When you really want something to be a certain way and you hear about an amazing opportunity and you want it to be real, sometimes the caution goes off to the side. And, you know, I've been in situations where a person approached me and said, this great job offers in Dubai and I'm really excited about this and they're going to offer all kinds of perks and a huge salary and so forth. And immediately after telling them what the concerns are, they still do it. <clears throat> so I think this gullibility really comes down to uh, people having a desire to have a better life, to make money, to be able to uh, kind of move forward. And as a result of that, uh, the caution goes out to the wind. It doesn't, it doesn't get taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if they go to five people and the uh, first five people say no or are not interested, you're always going to find that six that's going to say yes. So that's part of way, the way this scam works, is you just keep approaching people till you find that gullible person, and then you manipulate them into a situation where they're taken away from their community and eventually forced into this outcome. And it happens to a lot of people because they just don't really kind of realize the extent to which there are people who will deceive and uh, use and exploit others. And Mr. Friedman, do you think uh, the COVID pandemic has made this uh, problem worse? I believe so. I mean, when it comes to kind of recruitment for human trafficking, a lot of the criminals, when they were quarantined themselves, weren't able to do crime, criminal activities the way they were doing them before. And as a result of that, they realized that they could do criminal activities online. And so you see a spike in scams all over the world. Now, the type of scam that we're talking about here is a little bit different from what you see, for example, out of Nigeria, where people will willingly be paid to go and do this. In this particular case, uh, you know, people are forced into it. And the people who are forcing them into it realize that if we get 10 terminals or 20 terminals or 100 terminals going to scam people, we're going to make a certain amount of money. And so uh, in order to kind of increase the potential profits that they get, more scammers means more money. And that's the reason why people are being trafficked into these situations. Steve Vickers, uh, to close off the half hour, do you want to have a quick uh, answer to Anthony's yeah. question? Well, Anthony, I mean, he's making some, 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 some good, uh, good points. I mean, my word is the parents now. Uh, you need to know who's traveling where, where they're going, what's their route, which hotels are they staying at, who they're in touch with and what have you, even if the kids are in the 20s and above. Greed is a big factor. As I say, the unlawful uh, cross-border gaming business has c come under great pressure. I mean, you saw the Macau 
businesses, the junkets being wallied. A lot of people have lost a lot of money. They're transferring their business interests into into platforms like that. But know where your kids are going, brief them, educate them. Uh, and then if something does happen, I mean, I, I take the emotion and the panic out of it. What needs to happen is cold calculated analysis. Where are they? What happened? We can probably work out which groups are involved in the certain circumstances. But the panic factor, uh, calling all the relatives, sending money in a hurry, all of these things are actually making worse. Um, so, so again, uh, I think we should all work hard not to uh, romanticize, if that's the word, or, 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 or over-panic the, the, the populace. Uh, because people, I, I really couldn't believe, as you said, Andrew, I, I couldn't believe the, the, the hysteria with, with, which this created. Well, I mean, once once the WhatsApp videos start going around, uh, yeah. <laughs> people. I mean, I, you know, we see it in Hong Kong a lot, yeah. uh, where that where that kind of takes off. And I wonder very quickly if uh, a lot of mainland Chinese who maybe were working in places like Manila and offshore gambling, uh, you know, when they couldn't go back to those jobs, maybe were going across the border into Cambodia and then getting caught up. Well, uh, the mainland government arrested quite a lot. They flew in a lot of public security guys uh, over the last eighteen months and actually arrested quite a lot of mainland citizens involved in. Uh, in raising money on the mainland and in lawful gambling. Uh, and I say that that's been shut down. It's dislocated uh, a lot of these syndicates, right. um, which is interesting. Yeah, and I, I guess probably the mainland government's got a lot more experience at it than uh, the Hong Kong officials do on, on account of having to deal with those situations. We're going we're yeah, to wrap Kong, this up. I would, say, yeah. I would say, to be fair, that the, the response from Hong Kong has been quick, organized, and, 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 and I think the best that they can possibly do. In the end, the, the Myanmar government does not control all its own turf now because of the difficulties there. But that is a problem. Yeah, that's, the Cambodia that's, side, I'm, very, I'm quite confident something more, more can done. be done there. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, we're going we're gonna to wrap that there for the top of the hour. Uh, we're going to have a break for the news. Very quickly, your weather today, sunny intervals and occasional showers, max temperature around 30 degrees. Thunderstorms later on today, showers for most of the weekend, some sunny on Sunday. Uh, hopefully getting better. Temperatures 27 degrees, 92% humidity. Back chat. I'm Andrew Work, and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, Janice Wong. Uh, on the top part of the show today, uh, we were discussing a recent uh, kind of alarming case uh, in Hong Kong involving people that were being uh, scammed into traveling to Southeast Asia and then being inducted into uh, conducting scams on other people uh, in their home countries, uh, people from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia. Uh, pretty alarming. In the first part of the show, we had Eunice Young uh, from the New People's Party and Steve Vickers, the CEO of Steve Vickers & Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Uh, and then we were joined by Matt Friedman, who's the chief executive officer of the Mekong Club. Uh, and he continues with us now discussing this topic. Uh, I've, got a, I've got an email here I'm going to kick off with uh, before we go to Matthew from Anthony. He says, uh, hi, can you, he says specifically, hi, Matthew, can you tell us about the victim of the Dubai case that you just said was the victim American or Hong Kong native or other, I guess. Uh, by the way, when I see those kidnapped being tortured to perform scams, they remind me of the circus animals performing to entertain we human beings and the animals are innocent. Cheers, Anthony. I don't know if he means the human animals or the circus animals, probably both. Um, 
Now, Matthew, I think we probably need to explain to people that uh, you're, you're an expert in this field, not not in this, not just in this specific case happening now, but as you said earlier, you've been doing this for 30 years and looking at it really on a global scale. Um, do you want to answer Anthony's question about the Dubai case? Some more detail? Yeah, this particular case was somebody from Thailand, and uh, the individual was lured with uh, the promise of a high-paying job, and when he got there, uh, it turned into something very similar to what you have here. Now, the interesting thing about the Middle East is there are very few non-government organizations and very little government oversight when it comes to these types of things. So once you get lost in that particular network, it's really hard to get out. Now, what's happening in this particular case, because we're talking about ordinary citizens that are just going off and uh, accepting these jobs or traveling to Southeast Asia, and then finding them in this situation, you're seeing an immediate response from governments. It's different from what we see in usual human trafficking cases where marginalized communities, uh, you know, communities that are not considered to be socioeconomically uh, viable and so forth get caught up. There's less interest. But in this particular case, the, the point that people are making is that anyone can get caught up in this. And so I think you're going to see a lot more immediate action as a result of that. And yeah. we're already seeing, seeing yeah. that with task forces in Hong Kong and in Taiwan and other locations. And uh, Mr. Friedman, I, I, as you know, Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong government has already set up a, uh, a task force to uh, help recover these Hong Kong residents. How difficult or how easy do you think it will be for, for them to recover these residents? I mean, we're talking about a larger um, operation or large organization, uh, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, in Cambodia, I think it's going to be a lot easier than Myanmar, and that's partly because these facilities are in uh, special economic zones that are just right out in the open, and they have been functioning for a while without any problem. But with all this negative uh, publicity, uh, pressure from the Hong Kong government or the mainland Chinese government or, or others in Cambodia is going to have an influence to kind of move that forward. The, the bigger problem is Myanmar, because you're talking about kind of a sliver of land along the Thai border that is kind of a no-man's land. And it's, uh, it's often run by criminal gangs, and there's very little rule of law, and there's very little kind of influence that the main government that Myanmar has in addressing that. And so it becomes more difficult. Now, what's happening at present is, you know, these ransoms are being paid, and people are being sent back. But, you know, the possibility of them receiving money and then saying that they need more is certainly uh, something that could happen. And so it's really important for governments to understand the, uh, the fact that this can be addressed and to do it very assertively and aggressively. And I think that will help to, to reduce this uh, pretty quickly. The only concern that I have, though, is that then it moves off to another location, and it, and it festers for a particular time there. For example, we just heard that Nepal had uh, an example of this that was opening up. And so, you know, it's push down, pop up. You close it in one location, then it opens up someplace else. Right. Now, now a few days ago, uh, we heard about a Hong Kong man who was uh, smuggled to Myanmar and uh, later returned after he, his uh, family paid ransom. And uh, he claimed he was guarded in Myanmar by armed men who appeared to be wearing military clothing. Um, of course, we don't know if these are, are the same people or that, who, who are holding the eight residents uh, captive. But uh, Mr. Friedman, do you, what do you think this information uh, tells us? Well, you know, there's a variety of different types of militias that exist within Myanmar. It's not just the government forces. It's uh, 
kind of uh, a series of uh, kind of ethnic groups that have their own militia. And so it's within the realm of possibility that these people could be very much associated with this, because this then becomes a revenue for them to get arms, to get to pay people, to, to do the activities that they want. So, you know, organized crime can be very organized. People don't recognize how systematic organizations can be. When you're raising as much potential money as these scam outfits are able to de develop, bribery and corruption is going to thrive. And that's why it's very difficult to go after kind of a business like this if it's in a location that doesn't have any kind of oversight, like what we're seeing in the border of um, Myanmar. Yeah, but somehow these these places that are supposed no man lands, they do have access to international phone lines and the internet to be able to perpetrate perpetrate these scams using you know modern technology. The technology, I'm sure, is. Uh, up-to-date, cutting-edge, and that's just because in order to do this, you need to be able to reach people, you need to have good internet, you need to have all kinds of systems and procedures that allow you to track IP information and so forth. I, I suspect that there is some real technical uh, oversight that exists within these locations. And, I mean, the economics of this seem very different. I mean, I, I, you know, I imagine from your, your past history, a lot of the slavery you're dealing with are the most abjectly uh, poverty-stricken people and, you know, their their lure of riches is a really low-paying factory job that is much better than their situation now. But what we're seeing is people being targeted in wealthier jurisdictions like Malaysia and Hong Kong. Um, is it because they require a higher skill level of slave to do the kind of work that they want done? They're, they're not putting them on fishing boats out in the middle of the, uh, you know, the Gulf off the coast of Thailand or Myanmar. They're They're asking them to get on the phone and conduct a financial swindle of some sort. Is, it, is there a difference in the economics of these types of scams that is driving Absolutely. them to source different labor? Absolutely. We're talking about uh, uh, middle class, upper middle class people who are educated to the extent that they are literate and they know how to use computers. You know, the typical situation is they say you have to raise a certain amount of money before you can leave or your family has to pay a certain amount of money. In one case, I heard it was you have to raise six million Hong Kong dollars before you can leave, or your family has to pay, you know, three hundred thousand. I mean, these are this, this, these are right within the the press. They're talking about these figures. They're out there. As a result of this, you need people who are smart enough, uh, who are educated enough, who are literate enough on computers and being able to write me emails and and think about how you scam people. They they have to come from a particular group that is educated. And so this is, this is a new phenomenon. This is the reason why you're going to have immediate action, because once again, I've been working on this issue for 30 years, and I feel really bad that we're not able to uh, help the lower socioeconomic victims because they deserve our help, but people don't really care about them. And I, I hate to say that, but that's the, the way it is. In this particular case, because we're talking about ordinary people, uh, being caught up in this, you're going to see much more action from governments. And that's why a task force will be set up. And I think you're going to see immediate um, kind of pressure on the governments of Myanmar and Cambodia and any of the other governments that eventually allow this to, to take place, because it's just, it is a frightening situation. Anyone can get caught up in this. And that's the reason why people are putting more emphasis on it. Yeah, there, there's been a little bit of back and forth, even even in Hong Kong, with uh, international organizations concerned that Hong Kong itself doesn't have very strong 
anti-trafficking laws. Do you think, uh, and I, I mean, the government pushes back on that, but I mean, do you think there will be more momentum gatherings for Hong Kong to strengthen its anti-trafficking laws now that it's our guys that are being... Well, uh, yeah, what we've heard for many years, the government has said that uh, they don't need anti-trafficking laws because uh, they have civil laws and criminal laws that address these things. And to a certain extent, they're right. My argument has always been the laws are not there necessarily to go after the bad guys. They're there to protect the victims. So if a victim finds themselves in a situation where they're doing illegal activities, they don't go to jail for that or a remand center because they overstayed their visa, et cetera, et cetera. So changing the laws in this particular case doesn't necessarily address what we're talking about in this particular case, mm. because the laws aren't going to affect if a person gets trapped in Myanmar or in Cambodia. Having said that, I mean, the uh, general awareness of human trafficking in Hong Kong needs to be improved, as it does in every other location across Asia and the world, because, you know, out of the 40 million people that are estimated to be in modern slavery around the world, Last year, the world helped about 100,000 people out with all of the NGO, UN, government uh, combined efforts. That's 0.2%. The reason why that is is that the resources to address this globally are low, and awareness is abysmally low as well. So general awareness of human trafficking, and in this particular case, how to protect yourself, is an extremely important part of the process. Okay. Um, uh, there was some question, I think, on the show, a little, little bit before you got on about the question of uh, definitions and said, oh, maybe we shouldn't hype this up too much because it's, uh, you know, talking about slavery in every case where maybe it's just trafficking. But to my mind, are, are they not all part of the same thing? I, I would say, to my mind, uh, people put quotes around slavery, but if you're being held under duress, under the threat of violence uh, or the application of violence and then forced to do labor, whether it's digging ditches or illegal fishing or scamming, isn't that all just slavery? I mean, do we need to put quotes around it? Human trafficking and modern slavery are interchangeable now. It's being used all over the world. Human trafficking was selected as a phrase because many of the early cases 30 years ago had a person going from one country to another. And as a result of that, like trafficking of drugs and arms, the assumption that movement was important was integrated into the phrase. Over time, people said, well, wait a minute, if a person doesn't get paid, if they can't leave, if they're forced into a situation, if there are threats, if there's beatings, if there's violence, what is the closest terminology to focus on the exploitation? So people said, well, slavery. But then people came back and said, well, slavery happened a long time ago. So they put the word modern. So what we're dealing with here is modern slavery. It's a defined definition of the outcome of human trafficking, whereby a person is trapped in a situation, forced to work, can't get out. It's not about a person who's in a factory who's being exploited but can walk out the door. It's about people who can't walk out the door. Yeah, it's which is slavery. Yes. But of course, we're in modern times, so I guess there's going to be a modern version of it. Uh, Matt Friedman, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, he's the chief executive of the Macon Club. As he said, he's been working on this for 30 years, hugely important issue. And even though 40 million people around the world still in slavery, probably one that is underappreciated. But now it's coming a little bit home to Hong Kongers, and maybe we should think about all those other people around the world as well. Uh, right. So we are moving on to our second topic today talking about Lion Rock Tunnel. The government says they're going to upgrade and widen it at a third lane in the Kowloon-bound uh, direction. We've got a uh, top-notch pro and regular 
on Backchat, Alok Jain, who is the CEO and Managing Director of Trans Consult Limited, our traffic major domo. Alok, uh, great to have you on the show. Yeah, good morning. So what's the deal with the Lion Rock Tunnel? They're going to widen it 2033. Uh, is this necessary, first of all? Well, Lion Rock Tunnel was built, um, you know, more than uh, 20 years ago. So obviously, a lot has changed. The population in new, Northeast New Territories have um, kind of skyrocketed since then, you know, more than doubled. So obviously, with all this population increase, the demand to travel through the tunnel, which is one of the key connections between Northeast New Territories and Kowloon, obviously has gone up. So there is uh, attempt to uh, increase the capacity. I mean, government added a Route 8 tunnel, but that was going towards the western side of Hong Kong, uh, which is uh, obviously uh, because of the high uh, tunnel costs of Western Harbor Crossing, hasn't proved to be as popular as Lion Rock Tunnel. So that still remains as a key route. And obviously any disruptions can cause havoc to traffic that is moving between uh, Kowloon or urban areas of Hong Kong and, and Northeast New Territories. So it is quite wise to have, uh, you know, those capacity augmentation uh, on the road space. But, yeah, there are, of course, uh, other solutions. There could be, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that come with that. Land Rock Tunnel also serves as a key route to serve through the public transport, all the buses that are running between Sha Tin, Maon Shan, Fanling, Xiong Shui, uh, they are all passing through uh, Land Rock Tunnel. And, and obviously, they are also stuck in congestion that is almost endemic uh, in Land Rock Tunnel at the moment in morning peak and evening peak. And there is a huge opportunity to provide, you know, the whole world is defining at the moment that to move people and not vehicles. And I think that's the kind of philosophy uh, or opportunity that we have as Hong Kong now to join uh, this worldwide uh, trend towards creating a more sustainable transport solution and possibly this extension that the government is doing at the moment or planning to do in the, at the moment is something uh, of an opportunity for us to look into you know, more sustainable measures to implement through Lion Rock Tunnel. I've got an email from your, your frenemy, your co-opetition in traffic expertise supremacy at uh, RTHK3. Of course, I'm talking about uh, James Ockenden, the editor at Transit Jam, who's also a regular mm -hmm. show. He's got an email for us. And you, you mentioned the word opportunity, so I'm going to his email. He says, opening a cycle lane between Kowloon and the northern metropolis would be a world-class move and be a very low cost as part of the tunnel upgrade. I presented this to highways departments who said they would look into it, but the environmental impact assessment they've done since makes no mention of the idea and has only shown lanes for motor vehicles. They need to redo the environmental impact assessment properly. This is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to easily connect Kowloon and Sha Tin for people on bikes or on foot. Cheers. What do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great idea. And, and, you know, one thing, we have to just put it in context. I, I'll extend what James has just said, that, you know, government has at all at, at a big expense and uh, has created this whole cycle pathway that connects from all the way from Tun Mun and runs through, you know, Yun Long uh, and then uh, to Xiong Shui and, you know, uh, Fan Ling and coming down all the way to Sha Tin, Tai Wai. It's a it's a very well utilized. I mean, I have lived in Sha Tin for more than 25 years. And I can tell you, this 
bicycle pathway has has been so popular among people if you go down on a weekend you can see the number of people bicycling there it's just amazing so, so it proves a point that hong kong is not a cycle averse city people want to cycle here and if you look at the number of journeys that are made every day more than 50% of the journeys are probably less than 15 kilometers which is completely a bicyclable distance mm-hmm. in any city and i think if we have bicycle friendly policies that is just going to augment this so this pathway that i'm talking about which is running some 70 kilometers from tianmen all the way down to shatin and taiwai it can easily be connected through lion rock tunnel and extended into kowloon side so there is currently let's say if you live in kowloon town which is just down south from lion rock tunnel and you own a good bicycle there is no way you can carry your bicycle unless you you put it on a car there is no way you can actually take your bicycle from kowloon town uh, to to shatin and then use this pathway so yes if you have a tunnel which includes a cycle lane then obviously it will encourage people living on the kowloon urban kowloon side so to bicycle all the way from their homes back into this beautiful track that the government has um constructed at public expense um you know all the way from shatin to tianmen so theoretically you would be able to bicycle from kowloon down to you know shatin taipei chungshui fanling and these are beautiful places where you have country parks where there are hiking opportunities where there's a river so it's 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 really creates a more um it's much better urban participation urban environment and it's a purely it's a very healthy activity in end of the day Yeah and I mean I, I you know originally I did high school in Vancouver whenever I go back I see they now every, all the buses have bike racks on the front of the bus and it seems like it's totally fine the cyclists come the bus stops they just throw them on the front get off doesn't slow anything down I guess we're a long way from that in Hong Kong a, a little bit chicken and egg where there's no demand so they're not going to do it but they don't do it Well there's a demand I, I I was working for a bus company for a long time and and I can tell you that demand is there but for uh, you know some preposterous reasons the bus companies have always felt averse to allow bicycles on board the buses so there are you know if you if you are taking a bicycle on board the bus the driver can actually deny you boarding and and i think those are the kind of rules which are very archaic and they are not very well thought out there is no risk assessment and on very frivolous grounds Mm-hmm. these uh, these possibilities are not explored even in mtr uh, a normal bicycle you can't take it even during off peak period even if you are willing to pay for it the only mode of transport in hong kong that allows a bicycle on board is the star ferry now but mtr i've seen people take bicycles in the mtr were they doing it you illegally you have to take your wheel off which is uh, for yeah. a normal average person if you're not a pro biker that's a fairly challenging task have you ever tried to take a wheel off on a full bicycle no uh, not to take it on the MTR that's for sure yeah so on a MTR you need to take the front wheel off only then you can you can take a bicycle on board yeah i've only i've only seen it with the bicycles that have the quick release tires yeah so coming coming back to the tunnel um they're going to add a third lane kowloon bound only why not in both directions well i think it's a it's a engineering challenge as well and and obviously they probably so what happens in terms of traffic pattern your morning peak is usually more concentrated and morning peak as we know <clears throat> because of the tidal flows is more concentrated towards southbound 
So morning peak is more critical in terms of traffic congestion as compared to evening peaking. Evening peak is more spread out. Uh, and hence, the focus probably, if you are really trying to, um, uh, you know, save the, the impact to the, to the environment or in, uh, reduce the construction cost or reduce the impact on or traffic inconvenience, then obviously I would say the priority would be in the southbound direction, and I think that's what they are doing. They are actually adding a lane in Kowloon-bound direction. But, yeah, in, in all possibility, uh, it should be done both ways because the amount of traffic that goes south, also the amount of traffic that comes north. Some of the central tunnels, some of the central lanes, can they change the direction of the midday? Uh, sorry, come back again. Can they, can they change the direction of the lanes at some points in the day? They do that now, don't they? Oh, well, in, in many countries, uh, that is quite common where you have um, what we call reversible lanes. And it, it could be a middle lane or it could be one lane that goes, uh, you know, in one direction. So Thailand practices it uh, quite um, frequently, you know, many roads in Thailand where you have reversible lanes. So, yes, that can be done, but that requires uh, very careful traffic management uh, in the tunnel. Uh, and I, I don't know whether they're ready for it. I mean, it's uh, not as simple as just you know, opening the lane. It, you have to look at safety aspects. You have to do a bit of a risk assessment. You may have to do some uh, measures to do the lane separation, etc. Did, did I have a misapprehension to think that I'd seen it before in Hong Kong? Did I, did I, <laughs> did I just imagine that? Or I'm not a driver, so I wouldn't. No, so it happens sometimes in the night in, in existing tunnels when they're yeah. doing the maintenance, when they shut down one side of the tunnel, mm-hmm. and then they have a two-way tunnel operating in within one tunnel. But the traffic at that time of the day is extremely low. And I think on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, during heavy rush hour, I don't think that is really, uh, you know, very simple to do. It, it requires, as I said, very careful traffic management. Mm, and with this one, they're going to, supposedly the work's all going to be done by 2033. How much disruption is there going to be in the meantime, and where is the traffic going to flow? be a challenge. I mean, I'm a civil engineer and I can tell you uh, when you are uh, widening a tunnel with running traffic in it, it's like doing, um, uh, you know, heart surgery uh, when the patient is still awake. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not easy. Mm. So it, again, uh, as a matter of cha- engineering challenge, it can be done, but it requires very careful execution of um, of the construction activities, and and obviously they want to keep it running at, the, at that time, and they may have to divert some traffic to other tunnels. And obviously we have two more tunnels. One is State Scan Tunnel, the one is the Route Eight, um, you know, uh, uh, tunnel. And both of them can can absorb the traffic at the moment. But I think with government putting more population uh, or planning to put more population in Queens Hill, in Tanling, and uh, develop the Kutung area in the northeast near territory the traffic is expected to increase and obviously the northern metropolis that is that will come which will in, keep increasing the traffic and that would put more and more pressure so as a forward looking measure i think expansion of the tunnel may be uh, necessary i mean i haven't seen all the traffic uh, details um, at the moment but then the, obviously the argument here is that if you are building more capacity, and then you know many cities, many countries around the world, when they add an extra lane, what they also do is take an opportunity to look at how many people move through the tunnel and through what mode of transport. I don't have the figures at hand, but when I when I have the figures of cross harbor tunnels, right. so in cross harbor tunnels, every day, 
80% of the people in morning peak actually travel through 10% of the vehicles, which are buses. So you can imagine, if you want to move 80% of the people at good speed through the tunnel and provide them a seamless connectivity, you are just need to you know, facilitate the 10% of these vehicles going through the tunnel on a special lane. And that's the argument which goes towards uh, providing a bus lane. And Singapore does it quite often. All the new highways in Singapore, they have to provide a bus lane. So, and, and I think that's the kind of philosophy Hong Kong needs to adopt. I mean, we, Hong Kong is one of the unique cities in the world. We have 90% of the daily travel, almost 90% of the daily travel on public transport. I can tell you this is a dream for so many mayors and planners around the world, and we have already achieved that. So I think we need to build on this this uniqueness of Hong Kong, and we need to just uh, you know become a standing example for the rest of the world. People who come to Hong Kong go back and talk about its public transport. I mean, that's a it, to me that's a tourist attraction of Hong Kong, and and it facilitates a lot of economic activities, the tourism, etc. And I think we need to just build upon that as we are coming back from COVID. With everybody's trying to rebuild economies, and and. This has been proven again in many cities in Europe that more walk-friendly cities, more bicycle-friendly cities are really working towards augmenting the economic development or economic rebound of these cities. So right. Paris has gone for a 15-minute city uh, concept. Uh, many of them are adopting very similar. And Hong Kong, we could be, we, we seem to be doing nothing about that at the moment. We have, we are not creating any more walk-friendly environments, any more bicycle-friendly environments. All right. Well, Alok Jain, the CEO and Managing Director of TransConsult, giving us another one of his tour de force on traffic and traffic policy in Hong Kong and, and suggesting a better way forward. Thank you for joining us. Okay, that's a wrap for Back Chat this week. Thank you to all of our listeners, especially those that called in and sent emails. Huge thank you to my co-host today, Janice Wong. <laughs> thank you. All right, our producer, Yuki Song, was uh, doing a great job with the guest today. And, of course, my main sound man, Ming, in the booth. Make sure you tune in Monday for more political chit-chat on Back Chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Uh, look into your weather this weekend. Sunny intervals, occasional showers, max temperature 30 degrees, thunderstorms later. It's going to be wet this weekend, maybe a little better on Sunday and then getting even better weather on Monday and Tuesday. Right now, the temperature is 28 degrees Celsius. We're at 90% humidity, and that is Backchat. It's the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to the motherland. And the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region is celebrating its 25th year. This special occasion is for every Hong Kong citizen. A wide range of events are being held to celebrate the anniversary with the public. Join in the celebrations and share the joy. Together we shall move forward to a brighter future.